We're in um, a series that I think a bunch of you uh, are finding enjoyable and challenging based on um, the emails. <laughs> um, Israel's great prophet, Isaiah, um, had prophesied that when the Messiah came, the watchmen over Israel, those who were looking for, searching for, ready to worship and welcome and follow the Savior, that when the Savior came, that those that were looking for him would begin to see, as, as he wrote, eye to eye. That's where we get the saying from. The people would begin to see eye to eye. They would see their Savior the same way. They would see their salvation the same way, his kingdom the same way, and their world, the world in which they existed now, this temporal one, in, in, in similar and new ways. And so, by examining the mindset, the worldview of Jesus, how he sees things, we're trying to learn to see eye to eye again with one another. Can we agree that we haven't done well on this over the last however many years? And then, in understanding what Jesus' worldview is, how Jesus sees things, we're going to try not to just understand, but to love our neighbors who see things differently. Week one, we looked at just what a worldview is and, and what the predominant ones in the culture that you and I thrive in or, or try to thrive in today are. Last week, we looked at the debatable concept of truth. Every worldview underneath it claims in one way or the other that their way of seeing things is the absolute truth. It's grounded in the absolute truth. Even worldviews that claim there is no such thing as absolute truth actually can't deny it. We, we went through it last week. Once you say there is no such thing as absolute truth, you may just made an absolute truth claim. Now today, I want to focus on the foundation of Jesus' worldview, the foundation of the way, the cornerstone, really, of how he sees things. Because seeing eye to eye with one another, right, if we're going to do that, this concept is structural. It's critical. There's a story that's told about a little girl asking her father. She went up to him and said, Dad, how did the human race start? And the father answered, God made Adam and Eve, and they had children, and so all of mankind was made. Accepting that, she went on her way. But two days later, the little girl asked her mother the exact same question. And the mother answered, well, many years ago, there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. Well, the confused little girl returned to her father. Dad, how is it possible that you told me the human race was created by God, and mom said that they developed from monkeys? The father answered, it's very simple. I told you about my side of the family, and your mother told you about hers. <laughs> Worldview, the way we see things. The four core words of Jesus' worldview, of the way he sees things, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The four core words, they have to, and I don't often use that term, have to, but they have to. They have to undergird your understanding of who God is and what he has done. Because what you think about God is the most important thing you actually think about. American theologian, pastor, author, A.W. Tozer, actually a Christian Missionary Alliance guy, he put it this way. He nails it about how we think about God, how important it is. He writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, 
but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Well, guys, listen, this is so good, right? We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Isn't that good? How good, how profound. And today, I want to give you four words that should immediately come to your mind. From now on, these are a new kind of core four that come to your mind when you think about who God is. Because I'm telling you, they move your soul. Now, when I give them to you, all right, I'm, I'm building them up a bit. When I give them to you, I'm going to be honest, you're not going to be like, oh my gosh, blown away. Didn't know it, hadn't heard it, would have never seen it coming. That's not going to be your reaction. And that's because in your life, in my life, these four core words have become so common, so in a sense ubiquitous, right, that they've lost their, their, their majesty, they've lost their wonder. Kind of like the Christmas story themselves. They've taken on, on almost a, a fictional story-like quality, and as a result, they, they, they've lost their awe. I want to return that awe to you this morning. Traditionally, these words, believed to have been penned by Moses himself, in order to understand just how breathtaking these words were, you're going to have to understand the world into which the words were written. In the 13th century BC, about 3,300 years ago, you need to understand the mindset of, of, of the average human being, right? In, in that world into which Moses was writing, there were not three or four great world religions. There was no internet where you could kind of look up what each and every one of those religions believed. 3,300 years ago, right, religions and gods were everywhere. Everybody had one. Every town had one. Every city had one. Every culture had a god. You know this, you went to school, right? There were, there were moon gods and sun gods. There were war gods and peace gods. There were Greek gods, right? You all could, could list the, 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 the pantheon of Greek gods. There were Egyptian gods. You might not know their names, but the great Egyptian empire which ruled the world, they, they, they had those gods inscripted everywhere. There was Ra, the god of the sun, Geb, the son of the earth, and Atom. He was seen as the progenitor of the world. In fact, Adam, if you go into the, um, into the uh, pyramid text, you'll see him written about more than any other god. Israel's great enemy, Babylon, they had their list of gods too. There was Marduk, the chief god of the city of, uh, of Babylon. But there was Ishtar and Nabu and lots and lots of others. In fact, right, into the culture which Moses was writing, Sumerian texts list approximately 3,600 deities. And it wasn't just cities and empires who had gods. Families had gods too. Families would worship ancestors. It wouldn't be unusual for in the family home, if you were to go into somebody's house, you would see lots and lots of idols representing these gods lined up on the mantle. Some for the city, some for the state, some for the family, some for the summer, some for the winter, some for family, some, some for things found in nature. Are you getting the picture? Into this world, and I would argue into our world today, where if we're honest, many of the competing worldviews out there, they have their own gods attached to them too. 
we went through some of these, right? But for the naturalistic worldview, the naturalistic worldview is, is that all that there is is all that you can see, touch, smell, taste, or measure, right? That's, that's the way a lot of people think today. While they would claim there's no God, at the core of their worldview essentially is the God of nature, right? Natural selection is God. Natural forces are in control. Nobody's, nobody's controlling them, but at the end of the day, it's nature that is in control. There's the individualistic mindset that, that many of us see expressed all over the place today, where really everybody's just a God unto themselves, that really all that matters is you expressing you, you being you, what you believe, what you think, how you need to express that, right? They, they have a God too, and, and it's themselves. Now into the world of pantheon, the pantheon of gods, into this ancient world of the pantheon of gods, and into our modern world with our own set of gods come these four core startling words from Moses. These first four words that are in your Bible. In the beginning, God. And the implications from just these four words, they set the ancient world on its head. I have to tell you, if you really understand their implication, it would set our world, your world, our cities, your homes, our kids, it would set us on our heads too. In the beginning, God. Not the gods. Not the moon god or the sun god, not warring gods who in their fight just happen to spin off earth and humans. There's a lot of creation stories spun around that. No, in the beginning, God, one God, only one. In these four words, Moses makes actually two startling claims. In fact, beyond startling, he makes one claim that modern-day scientists dismissed until just a few years ago. Science laughed at Moses' claim until recently. First claim. You, 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 you rush right by it, but, but you have to see its depth and meaning. And, and there's a subclaim attached to it. There is a God, and you're not him. There is a God. The writer of the Hebrews, which is recorded in the New Testament, that writer wrote, without faith it's impossible to please God because anybody who comes to him must believe that he exists. And it's true. Nobody can prove that God exists. I am here to tell you that that is the truth. I cannot prove to you that God exists. It is a matter of faith. But that does not undermine the validity that God exists. As you're going to see in a minute, faith is what undergirds both science and religion when it comes to things of creation. And while it's true, faith is involved in believing that God exists, it has not prevented philosophers and brilliant minds over the centuries from trying to prove that God exists. Going all the way back to Aristotle, who wrote on the proof of the existence of God. Aristotle, who predated the existence of Jesus, he famously wrote about some of what he perceived to be the proofs of a living God. They were picked up by and influenced Thomas Aquinas, who in the 13th century wrote an entire book called Summa Theologica. Some of you that have taken philosophy classes are aware of this. This is a huge philosophical concept. Aquinas lays out what he famously called the five waves, the five proofs of God's existence, the five arguments. 
I'll just tell you what they were. I won't go into them because it's in a philosophy class, right? But his five arguments were the first mover argument, the universal causation argument, the argument from contingency, the argument from degree, and the argument from final cause or ends. And I'm telling you, if you go back, I went down some rabbit holes this week, man. If you go back and you start to look at how this has influenced thinkers, you'll see that these five principles have influenced thought for millennia. I mean, Aquinas really set people thinking. Now, I'm going to give you two of the proofs that I studied this week, which were the most interesting to me. And if you're interested, I, I, I think you'll be interested. Now, remember, I'm not a philosopher. This isn't a philosophy class, nor am I a scientist. So I'm not going to get too deep here. But I do want to give you two interesting proofs, proofs of, of God and, and, and faith, having faith in God. There are the cosmological argument, which is sometimes called the first cause argument. That was an Aristotle slash Aquinas argument. And the teleological argument. That's a, that's a more modern um, argument, which is an argument from design. I'm going to start with the teleological, the design argument. In fact, it's an argument made possible by science, which, which science, in all of its myriad of discoveries over these last years, the brilliance of, of scientists, right, they have learned so much about creation and, and, and who we are and, and the universe we exist in, it's fine-tuning it's so fine-tuned that many of the scientists are coming to believe that it's too fine-tuned to be random. It just can't have naturally occurred. The design itself is just way too intelligent to be random. From galaxies and stars all the way down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of the universe is determined and held together. I'm telling you, again, I went down a lot of rabbit holes this week. But we are held together by shockingly precise mathematical values that fall within exceedingly narrow life-permitting ranges. If any one of any of these values, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of values, if any of them is altered by merely a hair's breadth, right, no life of any kind could exist anywhere. I'll give you one example I came across this week, gravity. Are you aware of the gravitational constant? Perhaps you're not. Let, let me illuminate you on the gravitational constant. If the gravitational constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, no one exists. Now, I got to bring some perspective to that, right? Just one in 10 to the 60th parts. To understand how narrow that light permitting range is, I want you to picture in your mind a dial, okay? So that dial has to be set at just the right number. Um, Perspective-wise, right? If you write it out, that's one with 60 zeros behind it. That's the, the range of the dial, one with 60 zeros next to it. That's the number of different stations you could tune to, all right? It's got to be set on just the right one. Perspective, the number of cells in your body is 10 to the 14th, right? Or the, 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 the number of seconds in history is 1 to the 20th. But if the gravitational constant varied by just 1 in 10 to the 60th increment, the universe would either have expanded so rapidly that no stars would have formed and life wouldn't exist, or if it went the other way, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself to the same result. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. 
You could do this all day. The complexity of the design of you and the space we occupy is beyond comprehension. But I'm no scientist, and so you shouldn't take it from me. That's why I bought this along. Check this out. As a scientist, scientist, microbiologist, biochemist, biochemist, as a geologist, neuroscientist, physician, biologist, and an engineer, I think there is overwhelming evidence for intelligent design in nature. I see intelligent design in the history of life, in the genetic code of life, in the molecular machines inside our cells, in the complexity of life, in the information embedded in living things, in the operation of the human brain, in the features of the human body, in the chicken and egg causal circularity of life. As a mathematician, I see great evidence of purpose in the universe. As a molecular biologist, I see evidence for design everywhere I look, pretty much. Nature is incomprehensible without inference to purpose and to intelligent design. The properties of the universe as a whole and our planet in particular were fine-tuned for our benefit and for our survival. In my view, the fossil evidence clearly points to its intelligent design. I see life as designed because when I look at life at the molecular level, I see exquisite engineering. All cells contain DNA, which include lots of information, and information is only the product of a mind. Darwin thought living cells were just blobs of jelly, but when I look in a living cell, I see evidence of factories, machines, uh, three-dimensional architectures, enormous amounts of encoded information. There's power generators, there's manufacturing plants. Life contains many features that we know from experience only arise from the activity of intelligent agents. The genetic code is like a software program. It's like somebody would have had to be a coder, would have had to form this particular genetic code. When I see that, order and design, I have a really hard time believing that random mutation and natural selection, selection alone can cause uh, the complexity and the diversity you see in life. When you look at nature at large, what you see is incredible examples of innovation which surpass human technology. Examples include the flight capabilities of a hummingbird, sonar and bats, and greater innovation always implies greater intelligence from a designer. If you read the message from the molecules, it's really clear. They say clearly, intelligent design, intelligent design, intelligent design is the source of life. You'd be better off taking it from them than from me. Um, Duke, Penn, Cambridge, these are some of the most accomplished and, and brilliant men and women on the face of the earth who look at this argument, this teleological argument, and go, gotta be, gotta be. Now there's a way to, 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 to think about this argument which is actually kind of interesting. You base your life on this principle except sometimes when it comes to creation. John Collins, in his work Science and, and Faith, he attributed an interesting take on it to, to William Lane Craig. It's been called the firing squad argument. Imagine that there are 100, you go and you pick the 100 best trained marksmen on the face of the earth to carry out an execution. 
And the one to be executed is bought up and his hands are tied before his back and behind his back and his, he's blindfolded. And all of the men, the best marksmen on the face of the earth, they're all told to get ready. And on the th count of three, they're going to fire. One, two, three. They all fire. Now, if you are the person that was blindfolded with your hands tied behind your back, you heard the count of three, what are you expecting to happen? I'm expecting to be shot by a hundred guys. What if you only got shot by 99, by 98, by 10, by five, by none? If at the count of three, you weren't shot and you took off your blindfold and they were all there, they all fired and they all missed, you would have two things that you could conclude, right? The first would be, wow, what luck, right? I am the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. But what would you likely conclude? Something was going on there, right? Somehow these guys orchestrated, came up with a plan to not kill me or I'd be dead. I mean, is it possible they all could have missed? Of course it's possible. But would you ever build your life on that? Makes no sense. Now, the other argument, right, is the, is the, the cosmological argument. This argument is as old as time is itself and as current as literally right now. It was first put forth by Plato, that's how old it is, and then Aristotle, and, and it was detailed by Aquinas. And the argument is quite simple. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. This is where science is now just kind of catching up to Moses. It's fascinating. Because thousands of years ago, Moses wrote, in the beginning, God. Not only did he say there was a God, right, that God exists, he said there was a beginning. You need to understand, for most of the last 3,000 years, nobody believed there was a beginning. Everybody, every scientist worth his salt, up until the last hundred years, there wasn't even a competing theory. The universe was eternal. It was fixed, and it was eternal. There was no beginning. There was no end. Moses shows up and goes, mm, it had a start. And everything that has a beginning has a cause. Well, really, just over the last couple of years, 50 years or so, science has, has now come to change their mind and believe Moses was right. With the advent in the 1920s of a competing theory, which you're all familiar with, the Big Bang Theory, right? It became universally accepted, though, right, in the 1960s. Science would argue that the cosmological argument for the existence of God, because this argument states that everything has a beginning, has a cause, well, they would say that that argument makes no sense. The universe has no beginnings. That is until 1964, when two Bell Lab-affiliated scientists, one was an astronomer, one was a scientist, right here in New Jersey, shout out for Jersey, they pointed their microphones towards the heavens. And you know what they heard? This is what they heard.
That is the sound of cosmic microwave background radiation. Everywhere they pointed the microphone, the same sound came back from the universe. And what they discovered was, right, they discovered that that was the leftover radiation from the beginning of the universe. It's cemented in the 1960s that the Big Bang actually had occurred. There had been a beginning. There was a time when the universe didn't exist, but the radiation effect of that Big Bang continues to ripple through creation. And if it had a beginning, it had a cause. In fact, what scientists will willingly tell you, right, is that if you go all the way back to the origin of the universe and that radiation, the Big Bang, when in a trillion of a trillion second, the universe exploded from the size of something smaller than a pebble, all matter and energy came. And at that moment, science gives way. Scientists will tell you that the scientific rules don't hold there anymore and that you have to just accept things at that point by faith. The same way, according to the writer of Hebrews, that you and I have to accept God. This is why I think Einstein had it right. And by the way, Einstein did not, Einstein fought, and it's tied actually to what he says is his biggest regret. Einstein fought for many years that the universe was eternal, or excuse me, uh, that the universe had a beginning. He had, he, he had always stipulated the universe was eternal. One day when he was walking, he famously was reported to have concluded this. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest is just details. He's right. The rest is just details. Now, in terms of the creation story, we spend a lot of time arguing over the details. But what Moses is trying to, part, to, to, to impart is not how God created the world, but that he created the world. Now, there are lots of smart people out there arguing over the hows of creation. You've got, you've got Christian scientists that, 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 that espouse an old earth theory, uh, new earth series, uh, new earth theories. You've got theologians that are debating what would Genesis count as days. You've got, you've got secular and Christian scientists trying to determine what evolution plays, what role evolution plays in creation. Those are all great questions. But to Einstein's point, they're details. Here's the core. In the beginning, because there was a beginning, God, because there is a God, the teleological argument and the cosmological argument point to the fact that there is a God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has a beginning, and it had a cause, and if it had a cause, the question's got to be answered, what was it? Moses says, I know what it was. It was God. And if it was God, and God created the heavens and earth, that means that the heavens and the earth and all that there is, all that is in them are not random. They don't exist by chance. They instead, they, were, they exist by design, on purpose for a purpose, on purpose for a purpose. What was the design and purpose of the heavens and the earth? The unbelievably amazing complex creation. It had all of those mathematical formulas. You couldn't understand them if your life depended on it. All of them exist for one purpose. Fine-tune all the way down to this incredible point of singularity where every dial is set to the exactly pinpoint right thing for one reason. Then God said, 
let us make mankind in our image. The purpose of all of it is you. You. You see, Jesus understands something about you and I that we often forget about ourselves. Everything in all of creation is the way it is for you. To sustain you. And why? Because you are the pinnacle of creation. You're not the product of it. You're not an afterthought in it. What Jesus knew, but we forget, is that you are not merely the evolutionary byproduct of random coalescing of matter. You are made in the image of God. He made you different than he made everything else. Nothing else in all of creation is like you. Nothing else bears the image of God. You are not God yourself, as the individualist worldview would proclaim, but you're made in his likeness. And as a result, here's how, how Jesus sees things that we don't. Think about how the world would have been run over the last millennia if everybody believed this, if everybody could just get this concept. Every person, every human being that has ever lived was created on purpose with a purpose. They, because they are made and created ex nihilo, right, out of nothing, in the imago Dei, in the image of God, every human being, every man, every woman, every child, every race, every creed, every color, every lifestyle, every worldview, if they share Jesus' way of seeing things or not, every single one of them, from creation to death, every one of them made in the image of God, and therefore do dignity and honor and respect they're to be treated with worth and value for their from nobility. This is why Jesus sees people from, from the unborn to those throw, curled up in the throes of Alzheimer's as image bearers on purpose for a purpose. There are no accidents. There are no mistakes. It's not like God goes, whoops, I didn't see that one. Didn't see her coming. And Moses, then he, I mean, Moses is pushing the first century envelope. Well, the pre-first century envelope, the B.C. first century envelope. Really, I mean, in a world where every other religion, where the people are created to do the bidding of gods, Moses writes, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that, so that Moses gives a purpose, so that well, here, they, you know, they had to know what was coming, right? Because they knew the creation stories from all the other religions. So that what? So that, that they could serve the gods? So that they could perform for the gods? So that they could do the bidding and, and wage wars of the gods? So that they could make sacrifices in order to keep the gods happy and, and so they wouldn't be smited? Nope. On purpose, for a purpose. And it was this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so that they may rule. God makes man. Nobody had ever come up with this before, okay? This is crazy talk. God makes man not to serve God, but to rule. And he gives, he gives this task to no one else. 
God creates this unbelievably complex universe, complex beyond what you will ever understand, a universe still expanding with you in mind for you to reign and rule over. A universe of incredible worth, of breathtaking beauty. And he goes, here, I made it for you. It's unbelievable. I made it for you. It was clear to Moses' audience, it's a bit lost on us, but, but I think we, in our generation, we need to hear it because we have to counteract so many of the cultural worldviews of our day and, and the things that are getting lodged into our minds. Here, God says, I, I made this for all, all of you, with you in mind. I mean, it's just perfect for you. You'll never understand how perfect it is, really. But trust me, it's perfect for you. And then he goes, he goes, look, I give you a purpose in it. I want you to rule it. Don't worship it. In Moses' day, this would have been a shocking rebuke, right? You don't worship what I created for you. You rule it, right? It's not yours. You didn't make it, and it's not by accident. It's mine, but I made you for it and to rule it. You don't create idols of what I've made and worship them. I mean, for Moses' audience, right, this is a rebuke against the sun gods or the moon gods. Don't make idols of birds or cows. But guys, let's be honest, right? Look at what we do. For us, the message is the same. It's just that the gods have changed. Don't worship what I've created for you. Money, things, houses, cars, sex, youth, beauty. Don't worship yourself. You're not God. You're created. You had a beginning, and if you had a beginning, you had a cause. I made you for a purpose, on purpose, in my image, with dignity to rule and reign on my behalf. In fact, it's such a shocking statement. He says it again. He doubles down. He goes, I want to make sure you're getting how profound what I'm telling you is right now, how big a difference this will make in your lives and in humanity at large. He goes, so let me repeat it again. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Ladies, into a male-dominated world where women were afterthoughts. Worse than that, where women, if they were allowed to live through infancy, many of you know in ancient times, sons were valued so highly, and little girls just took up valuable resources. So often little girls, and, and really, if you go back and, and study this, from Aristotle on, all through the, all through the uh, Roman leadership, any child that was deemed to have any um, disformity or didn't measure up, it was not just permitted, it was encouraged to end the life of the child up to three years old. It wasn't uncommon for, for these children to be, be left to exposed to die. They were often found in garbage dumps. And it was there where these early Christians would show up in the dumps because they saw things the way Jesus did. These children of worth and value, it doesn't matter what they look like, what gender they are. And so the Christians would show up in the dumps and they would adopt these children, the ones disposed of, because they saw things the way Jesus did. 
But ladies, here in the opening line of the scripture, Moses is making a point that say that men were not created in the image of God. Women were created in the image of God too, and therefore they are not created to serve men or be subservient to men, but is equal in value and dignity and worth and purpose. The world is just starting to figure that out. Moses wrote it down 3,000 years ago. You see, the way Jesus sees things, the way he understands creation, it's a, it's a lot, by the way. Jesus understands a lot about creation. Uh, I'll show you why. Here's what his disciple, John, he retells the creation story at the beginning of his letter. He says, in the beginning was the word, right? Creation was spoken into existence. And, and so he begins to compare Jesus to the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Paul would go on to say that Jesus actually is the one holding all of this complexity together. Jesus' role, his specific role in the Godhead is creator. And he sees women of equal value, worth, purpose, cause, and dignity as men. He also saw something that our world is currently and incrementally discounting. I think this is fascinating. That men and women are different. He created them male and female. He created them on purpose for a purpose. I have to tell you, in a world where gender roles and gender lines are, are being blurred, God, our creator, goes, no, no, I want you to understand, I made men and women on purpose for a purpose. Don't easily dismiss or deny the uniqueness. And then when he was done, Moses writes that God stood back and God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. Our choices and our free will, which he so lovingly gave us, hadn't messed it up yet. But the world God originally created, the world which is to come again, is summed up with two words, very good. There are competing worldviews out there today. They think differently. Right? In the beginning, God is not the structure of their worldview. And thus, they draw different conclusions. They're not bad people. They're not evil people. They're not your enemies. But these four core words in the beginning are not the framework on which they build their lives. I mean, for the naturalist, right? All that there is is all that I can see, taste, measure. For the naturalist, it's all Darwinian, only the strong survive. There are no absolutes. There's no truth. There's no eternal right or wrong. There is nature and natural forces and random chance. And as a result, I mean, the truth is life can't have any, any eternal meaning or value other than what human beings decide to ascribe to it. And when it's over, there's no life after death. If you believe that, and many of our friends do, if you believe that, you're going to draw very different conclusions about your life who you are, your value, your worth, your dignity. You'll draw very different conclusions about the value of others who don't look like you or think like you or act like you or vote like you. And see, heck, a lot of the times, us, we as Jesus followers, we act like naturalists too. For the individualists, those who believe that they're gods unto themselves, they just become slaves to their own deified selves. Their purpose is their pleasure and their happiness. 
Their truth is what they believe. It's a relative truth. They worship how they feel and what they think and what they want. Their truth is their truth. Your truth is your truth. But friends, to Jesus, he sees things differently. In the beginning, God made every single man and woman and child of every race and creed and color for all of time and all of eternity on purpose, for a purpose, in his image to reign and rule over the heavens and the earth that he created specifically and purposely for them. And when you see things the way Jesus sees them, you will see yourself differently. Don't you see? That God knows the very, he says, the hairs on your, your head are numbered. You begin to see other people differently. You begin to treat them not as they deserve, but as you'd like to be treated. You were made in the image of God with dignity. Treat others that way too. You'll understand that your life is, is not without purpose, and that purpose is not of your making. You were created by God, for God, to rule and to reign over all of his creation. Not to worship it, but to steward it. It's not your stuff. The world is not yours. Care about it. Your money is not yours. Steward it. Do you understand the power of these four words? It changes everything. I want to conclude with this. In 1968, it was a terrible year in the, in the history of American culture. I mean, protests and violence and assassinations, you name it, it couldn't have been a worse year. Well, the Apollo 8 mission was going on in, in 1968, and, and, and there were a couple of men, three, I believe, that were on the mission, three or four, and they were on this mission to the moon. And the timing worked out such that on Christmas Eve in 1968, at the end of this very tumultuous year, they were going to broadcast live images back to the Earth of the moon, and that was the purpose and they were gonna put it on TV. And when the men asked, well, how many, what's the audience going to be? The, the, the response was, you will have the largest audience in the history of mankind. There will never be a bigger audience than the one you're going to speak to this night. Make sure you do a good job describing the moon. But when the men got to space, it wasn't the moon that caught their attention. They looked back and saw the Earth, and they were completely awestruck. And so, as they figured out what they were going to say to the earth, the biggest audience in history, what were they going to say to, the, to them on this Christmas Eve? Would they, would they talk about the marvel of it? Would they talk about the science of it? Would they, would they maybe give in to, to, to pop culture and, and read, you know, the night before Christmas or, or share a story about Rudolph? That's not what they decided to do as they looked back on the earth. And so I'm gonna conclude with that live broadcast. I'm gonna ask you to stand for it, and then we'll go right into worship as soon as it's over. Can I ask you to stand? We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, 
God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called east.